Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the EdTech Distilled Podcast. My name is Adam Geisen. Joining me tonight, as always, Dave Lurch. David, say hello. Hello, out there in podcast land. Uh, They're all listening intently, so what kind of words of wisdom do you have for us this evening to get our evening started? Well, I'm newly bearded. Uh, I've grown a a beard over the summer. And I feel like it's really great. Thanks, man. And yeah, I you guys should see it. It's really full, and yeah. you can see the animals growing. And yeah, some people have said I look like Gandalf. So, um, so yeah, I feel I very wise. That, yeah, I feel I feel very wise. And I've been looking for, um, you know, some people to uh, take on a quest with me. So, uh, I've been hanging out in parks and uh, trying to, uh, you know, encourage people to get into my car with me. So, That's which is great. why, so, like. Following school buses around and seeing if kids, you know, you're like, hey, guys, let's all go on a journey to destroy a ring. Yeah, that's why I'm candy and some puppies here. That's that's why this special episode is being recorded from prison. So (laughs) (laughs) but joining uh, us also tonight, besides David Lurch, mm -hmm. is Devin Rossiter. Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to uh, chat with us this evening. Gentlemen, it's great to be on board. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to hear. You've got such an interesting uh, collection of experiences, and we can't wait to hear about them all. So we'll absolutely. Uh, we've got uh, we got plenty of great questions in the hopper for you. Uh, before we jump into that, um, we are we've got a couple new and exciting things. We haven't had a podcast in a long time. It's been mm-hmm. a little bit over a month, um, and uh, there's been a lot of changes. Uh, there's been a lot going on, sort of in our world personally, and in uh, in the business world, in the tech world, and so we've got some stuff to talk about. Um, but Dave, I'm going to let you start. Okay. Yeah. And, and we're not going to get to, I know before we had talked about, uh, when Elon Musk had purchased, uh, Twitter, or at least done so with the intent of purchasing Twitter. And then now he's uh, tempted to back out and sue the, uh, Twitter and now Twitter is countersued. So if you're paying attention to that at all, it's going to be a fascinating financial, you know, yeah. amount of legal work there, because I, I really don't know what's going to happen there. And I was going to throw that article in there, but I feel like that's so up in the air still, but something very cool to start off, uh, two kind of uh, technology um, notes. The first one uh, is that if you've paid attention at all to uh, kind of Mark Cuban and what some of the billionaire entrepreneurs are focusing on, Mark Cuban was the first to kind of do that. And a lot of these um, organizations, um, Fortune 500 companies that kind of dabble in a lot of little things have been looking at the future of pharmaceuticals. So the future of making easy to deliver um, like online pharmacies available for everybody, you know, worldwide so that, you know, you can get the medicine you need or, or whatever type of medical support that you need. And um, uh, Amazon has been developing uh, cancer vaccines uh, with a, a hospital, um, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and they're making personalized vaccines specifically uh, to treat breast and skin cancer. And right now they're oh, wow. still in that trial, the clinical trial um, portion of their development. Uh, but they're looking right now to make some type of clinical trial. They're looking for people who are willing to be patients in this trial. Uh, really hush hush about it. Um, not something that Amazon has been really out there promoting. I, they've kind of been quiet about their their pharmacy and their medical um, uh, forays. But this is something that's really neat. I have the full article linked in the show notes. Uh, and, and effectively, what this is, is it's Amazon uh, is creating some type of cancer vaccine with the Seattle-based Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and they're recruiting people to do this FDA-approved clinical trial. Now, again, I, I think the title's a little misleading. It says cancer vaccine. It's focusing on breast and skin cancer. Uh, those are the two main focuses, but still, that's pretty awesome because if this yeah. ends up being successful, um, this is a way where you know we could, as a medical the medical world could treat things in a more personalized manner rather than, you know, everybody does the same types of treatments, 
when somebody gets sick. So a pretty awesome. And the, the best part about that is you have a private company like Amazon who's worth, you know, unreal amounts of money backing something like this for the good of humanity. Yeah. And hopefully it is for the good of humanity and not for the good of people's checkbooks. Oh, definitely. Let's just, let's just grain of salt. Yeah, no, totally agree. And and, and, and I, I, I certainly hope that. I mean, in that, you know, I'm sure it's altruistic to start, but it's all, it always can be concerning as those things <laughs> yeah. go. So uh, uh, I had a little piece of skin cancer removed from my forehead like uh, four weeks ago, five weeks, three weeks ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, if I hadn't, that was a little unusual and it was an awkward thing. And it's growing back. You can barely tell. But to not have to have done that would have been fantastic. Yeah. And the thing that I think is the coolest about that is it's personalized. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's taking treatments and not using one size fits all, but actually trying to tailor it so uh, it's more effective to everybody. I know my, my dad, he's totally fine. But two years ago, he was uh, diagnosed with cancer and he had to go through all of the chemo treatments and everything. And coming out the other end of that, um, the, the doctors finally had started to personalize some of the medicine that he was taking because the standard treatment was making him so incredibly sick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if we kind of approached it from that personalized side, uh, you know, who knows uh, what, what good could happen there. So I think one of the yeah. interesting things that might end up coming out of this is almost the direct to consumer bridge between those that will be able to generate and produce medicine, you know, and, and think about like a lot of people struggling right now with the cost of insurance, whether or not right. it actually does anything. Right. I'm paying for all this and I still have to pay all this for the treatments to just get by. Right. You might start to see companies that more directly get involved work outside of that insurance bubble and go direct to patients that might need them to provide lower costs. That could be a very interesting wrinkle that could have pretty wide ranging economic impacts if that goes through. So that'll be curious to kind of keep an eye out. Yeah, that's a good point too. And I know that I had read in the article, it kind of alludes to it a little at the end, but basically Bezos envisions what Devin is referring to this, this concept of like, you know, you can go on Amazon and you can order your vitamins and you can order, you can order anything on Amazon, you know, and, and you could effectively get onto the Amazon app and, you know, conference with a doctor or some AI system that would then help you personalize what types of treatment you need, even so far as like serious uh, treatments. Now, of course, that's not going to happen like next year or anything, but um, it's still, it's still a pretty neat, pretty neat thing. And a, and a neat way I think that tech is being used in a, in a positive. So um, the second thing I have on here, depending on when you're listening to this, this is uh, uh, July 13th. Uh, but this week, President Biden unveiled the first couple of photos from the James Webb telescope. So James Webb telescope is the, uh, it is the farthest reaching telescope that uh, we have ever had. Um, And it is, I don't remember the exact, like how many times stronger it is uh, than what the Hubble is, but uh, basically the first couple, and I'm sure if you've been on, on social media at all, you have seen the, some of the pictures that they've published and uh, one of the images that they've shared is a picture of uh, the, the, the picture. If we look up in the sky, it's basically the size of a grain of sand of what we would see out of our eyes. The picture that they blew up and they're looking really far. And, uh, the, the, you know, there's thousands and thousands of galaxies out there. So um, it just kind of an amazing, awe-inspiring picture. And um, the article I've linked is from uh, NASA. And it goes behind how uh, the James Webb Telescope uses MRI technology to pull those pictures and using different types of spectrum and the red shift of things moving away from us to show that. So if you haven't had a chance to see that, and I, that's my, my science teacher coming out, it's definitely something really neat. And you can read the press release from NASA and a little breakdown. And uh, the actual image itself is on there as well. So just something kind of cool. Two things kind of neat tech related to start things off today. Yeah, that's, which one of those is your new wallpaper now? <laughs> uh, the, the, that main one. The one that's on there. say goodbye to my wife and kids for the yeah. ring nebula. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, kids. That's we'll right. see you at Christmas. That's right. We'll put you back up there. Um, and, space and, kind of uh, trumps some, some stuff. Not, not always family, but some stuff. That's, that's pretty cool. epic. Um, and mm-hmm. and the, the coolest part about that is, um, you know, I've, I had been – uh, I, I work as a coach in our district, and so I've been kind of sharing information as it goes. And um, I had shared the link to NASA.gov where they were doing like the live stream of the announcement. And I wasn't sure if any of our kids would get on. <clears throat> and we had quite a few kids get on the other day and actually watch it, which was neat. So, um, you know, even though it's the middle of July, we still had kids who were, uh, were looking for that. So kind of cool. 
<laughs> that is cool. So my two things that I brought um, are not nearly as important or as exciting as Dave's are. Um, I like to bring tech-based BS to the podcast sometimes. Um, so the first one that I brought is that, that there has been published a study um, that a group has figured out how people can start to control things with their brains, like Man. actual telekinesis. Now, obviously, you know, our, our mind goes immediately to uh, like Hawkins the laboratory, first, the very front picture. <laughs> yeah. But the very the top picture of the article is uh, from the Matrix with the um, all the like the chosen one kids and they're sitting outside of the um, uh, of the Oracle and the yeah. kid bends the spoon. Right. Like, that's the picture. So that's what I'm imagining. But it's not like that no. in, in reality. So this organization figured out how to use Bluetooth to allow people to actually like control. It's like a it's almost like there's like electric waves and with your brain you can make the waves like tighter or wider so wow. like it's just kind of the start of the beginning of people using their brain waves to control stuff which i think uh is amazing yeah and could potentially be horrifying but also i mean you're thinking of like x-men right where like professor what, x is like magneto you know, crushing people with their minds that's i don't even thinking. think we're gonna get yeah, that far because totally. i let me think about this most of the stuff we really want to move but can't be bothered to is automatic for, like we walk into a grocery store when's the last time you physically opened a door to walk into a grocery store right? true, you just yeah. walk right through i can imagine we're getting we're about five years away from like this technology being widespread if it's bluetooth based then we'll all have access to it but to the point where like we want to move something we're like oh i gotta think about it <laughs> Like it's all, that is already yeah, going to be too. too far to the next step. That's and right. if it's that pain, it's that much of a pain for me to have to move my mind. I don't want to think about it. And so, yeah. let's just shut it down. I don't want to have to think about. It. I'm going to sleep more just to avoid having to move. Because then what? That's now, true. like somebody's going to ask me. Like if I have greater brain capacity and stronger brain waves, people are going to ask me to start moving things with my mind for them. Like, hey, for could them. you go ahead and <laughs> mind shift that fridge yeah. for me? Sure. Like, why do it yourself? Yeah, yeah but I didn't. Again. Yeah, you but you passed two AP exams, so <laughs> that's right. That's right. I can't wait until they have like Uber, uh, where you can move stuff with your mind, so I can just hire somebody to come and move stuff with their mind. That's the that's the gold mine. In fact, I'm gonna go ahead and trademark that now. So, yeah, get that URL. I will. Uber brain. Uber brain would be Uber good. moves. Uber moves would be better. Uber Let's just hope moves. that nobody uses that to uh, rip a hole into the upside down. So right. Sorry, it's been nothing but Stranger Things at I our was house just about to say over the summer. <laughs> so I got watching? it on the brain in more ways uh -huh. than one. So, uh, yeah. Speaking of people moving things with their minds, it's great. That's a great segue into uh, into the Stranger uh, Stranger Things world. Oh yeah. All right, but the last thing that I brought is something I want everybody to try because I saw this in one of these weird emails that comes through um, that I'm that I uh, spot. I, I don't nothing sponsored, but it comes to me, and I I always read it, and it's always fascinating. It's got the weirdest things. So this is a website. And you can pay for like a full version, but the, the demo version is worth spending a little bit of time on. It's called Townscaper. And basically what it is, you open up the website and it's like a total blank canvas. And when you go to it, you basically click and it builds buildings in the ocean, wherever you click and you can build them up or you can build them out. And it automatically like adds bridges and little towers and you can kind of choose what uh, if you go into the settings, you can choose what kind of land and what kind of colors, and what, also you can you can really personalize it. But it is purely a like waste of time, relaxation, like calm yourself by building a landscape uh, type website. And I just thought it was fascinating, really because of the way it's built, um, and it's uh, it's so smooth. And like when you click, it's like bloop, and this little building shows up. Huh. Um, oh, it's just I, I spent like an hour and built this like little town. And then, then there's like birds fly by, and like they sit on the roofs, and oh, uh, it's super cool. So it's, it's like worth, it's like uh, a relaxing Sim City. Yes, absolutely. It's a, it is a it's a not nothing's gonna burn down, and no planes are gonna crash in your city. Um, but you can definitely build a decent sized little town. Wow, it's very very cool. That so is anyway, very cool. But I the link don't get to summon both, uh, a kaiju to destroy it though. Is what I'm <laughs> That's hearing. right. No, you don't. No. This must this must be the beta because if they'll add that later. Now, if I could throw in there with with happens. my Uber moves and summon it in there, mm -hmm. now, now you've now got my talking. attention. Hey, we look. We got. We all have to talk off off this because we need to trademark all this stuff now and lock this down before yeah, somebody steals right. us. One of our nine listeners who steals us. Yeah, yeah. They might. Uh, you never know. If the right person's listening, that's right. We're gonna miss out on a billion dollars. You better believe it. And we could buy Twitter. 
<laughs> and then refuse to pay it. And then refuse to buy it. And then sue them. So, right. all right. <laughs> On that note. Uh, all right. So now we're, yeah, we're switching gears. So, uh, Devin, thanks for chiming in there. We always do like to kind of hear. We, Dave and I have very... Uh, we have opinions, and we like to uh, kind of give our opinions sometimes on the weird stuff that we find. We love it when other people chime in on that part of the conversation, so thanks for joining in there. Uh, but now we are shifting to focus on you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. We always like to ask people who join us on the show, what is their journey in education? What it has, been, has it been like? And I know you've got a lot of different paths, so interested to hear this. Yeah, I appreciate that, Adam. And you know, I'll, I'll preface by saying I never thought – that this would be the path that I took. Um, That's, you know, I, that always is too how people usually start. It really yeah, is. Well, yeah. It, it, so, you know, my big dream vision going through school, growing up in uh, Staten Island in New York, was to become a sports broadcaster. I would fall asleep listening to WFAN. So, big fan of the Mets, the Jets, the Knicks, the no, not the Jets. They were just on the station. So, I got away from them. Uh, never made the emotional investment, and I'm healthier for it. Yeah, but like you. the Knicks and the Rangers, um, you know, fell asleep, woke up, knew everything that happened. I had some great storytellers in Bob Murphy and uh, you know Howie Rose, uh, really painting the picture of these moments and these events that. I was I just thrived to be at. And so that's something that I wanted to pursue coming out of school in Staten Island. So I got into Northeastern University. Um, I, I studied sports broadcasting there. Uh, it was a five-year school, and I got involved with the student radio station as a sports director. So I got to do basketball, hockey, football, baseball. I also got to be a producer for a WEEI sports talk station in Boston. So I was the producer for the Red Sox when they won the World Series in 2004. That was the big one where, oh, wow. yeah. um, I mean, I don't want to bring it up 2004. I know You're you guys fine. are in the yeah. St. Louis no, area. It's all, all good. Right. It's all good. I just swept I, us. There's yeah, no argument. There, there. there was no arguing that. Yeah. One of, but one of the, 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 the best parts of that whole story was hearing how um, the Cardinals opened up Bush Stadium to allow the Red Sox fans who traveled uh, to be there for that moment when they clinched at the end of game four. Uh, and so that that was always like one of those moments that really stuck out to me. And so, you know, by the time I graduated college, I had this, you know, really unique um, buildup of a resume, you know, uh, in, in sports as a college kid. And, you know, I didn't go to a big school like Syracuse that had like the renowned, you know, broadcasting school where you're lucky to get a half semester of lacrosse to, to get that foot in the door. Um, <laughs> You know, I went to a student-run sports broadcasting program where we had a lineage of guys who graduated and then went on to the pros. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get a job straight out of college doing minor league hockey in Bakersfield. Um, so that's what brought me out here. It's literally like the first place that offered me a position, and I said, sure, let's go for it. And it lasted all of one season. Uh, they replaced me at the end of the year by hiring a guy from Syracuse, and uh, they paid him on a per-game basis. Uh, he had a master's, and they paid him half of what I was making. So I was looking at this. I was like, dream job is great. I got to experience all these wonderful moments. I got to travel. I got to be the voice. Um, I got to live out a dream. got to, to do some amazing things. But I stepped back, and I said, so this is a place where you get more education. You get paid less. <laughs> and... I started to reflect because, you know, I was starting to settle into Bakersfield. I, I met the woman who I would eventually go on to marry, so I wanted to see where this went. And I thought, well, how can I best use this skill set to the benefit of others? Because a lot of people put strong uh, effort into putting me in a position to attain this goal. And that's where the lean into education came in. I had a lot of family out east that had started teaching or substituting to get by. And so I, I did my toes in the water as a substitute. And I was astounded at how many people came up to me and said, like, how are you not doing this full time? Like, literally, like, it, it's, it's everything that comes through from media, right? Learning how to engage an audience, how to paint a picture, tell a story, use data to, to clarify what's going on. Um, and, and so... I, I, I went to get my teaching credential. I went to, to Cal State Bakersfield, picked that up, started teaching um, at a sixth grade uh, dual immersion class in uh, here in Bakersfield. And at the same time, you know, I was still uh, in sports. I got a position where I worked as a statistician for an NBA developmental league team. So what I would do is I would bring two of my students each game and they would work as um, – kind of student scorekeepers so they would help me run the stat sheets to the benches every time out players and coaches they, they got to overhear some of the conversations they were having about the numbers and sixth grade math is all 
ratios, percentages, mm-hmm. proportions, yep. everything you would see on a stat sheet. So, you know, they had these preconceived notions of players of just being just like go out and perform. Well, no, they're using data to make decisions on how to position, how to match up. And their assignment at halftime was to predict one change that the coaches would make coming out of the locker room, whether it would be um, a, a, a priority as far as shooting or switching a player out to start the half. Um, and so it provided that lens of application through observation. And so um, I started to really tinker around with math and edtech as far as how to best present tools to allow students to, to gain agency on that. And very quickly, I got noticed at the district levels. So with Bakersfield City School District, only after about three and a half or four years in a classroom um, position, I was brought on board uh, as a district level math specialist. And this is the largest K-8 district in the state of California with over 36,000 kids. So I had never been an academic coach. I had never been a, a wide level specialist, but you know they needed somebody who understood how math is taught and, and received at this stage in the game, right at the onset of Common Core. And then also they needed somebody to communicate that to the teachers and to be able to present that in a digestible manner. And so, you know, weirdly, I found that my media background now paired in with uh, this this uh, strength that I developed through math education. Now it all came together. And so that's when I started to get out there and really branch out, started presenting at conferences and started developing, you know, uh, my expertise as far as how to, you know, create videos to illustrate concepts and um, mass communicate that. And in fact, it was around that time I started working in television too. So I still co-host a local television show here in Bakersfield called Do the Math. It's been uh, going on for about 20 seasons now. Kids call in with homework problems and we bring in student guests. We visit after school programs, local organizations to build in connections with what's going on in the classroom. Uh, so that was around the time I got involved with uh, the Google for Education uh, program. Uh, I was uh, picked up as a, an innovator with the London 19 cohort. Um, that was transformative. I, I pivoted back to the school site as an academic coach so I could work more directly with educators, uh, all the while still continuing to, to really branch out. And, you know, my vision and mission in education has always been to reach as many people as possible outside of simply those I support directly. And, you know, or interestingly, around the time where I was back at Stern, um, you know, that's where I think, you know, right around the onset of COVID, some really interesting things happen as far as that visibility, which, um, uh, you know, we, we can talk about a little later on, too. <laughs> I, so I love how you just gl- kind of glossed over a couple of those things. Like, that's, that is <laughs> yeah. such a fascinating way to start a career. Holy yeah. God. That was you the know, beginning, I always, yes. That was ten, I always yeah. kind of argued that people, that everybody should be a teacher for, like, a couple years before you do anything else. Like, it should be, like, your thing that you do after college. Okay. You finish college, like residency. Now you got to teach for a couple of years, then go do, because I think that being a teacher makes people better at anything else they do after right. teaching. But now I'm starting to think maybe you should be like a sports broadcaster, then be a teacher, yeah. then go do whatever it is that you're going to do after that. Get some media background or something right. like that, you know? I would, I would just argue anything where you have to interact with people um, in an application Education. Anything, you know, I, I would even say, go so far as to say, like, pursue that dream first before you go into education. Yeah. Um, because one of the things I found that was very helpful with early on as a teacher was credibility with my students. You know, because a lot of times if you have a teacher that has gone straight from the, the, the stage of graduation at their college right into their classroom, you miss a lot as far as application and experience and a lens on society. Think about how many high yeah. school teachers have a complete disconnect with what the college experience is like as far as you know preparation or sure. you know the application of the skills, how that might differ. Um, you know, like okay, like what did you want to do when you grew up? You did, but then you're a teacher, so how does that apply? So right. being able to come in and say. So I, uh, I was a, a producer for the, you know, for a World Series victory. Um, I, I, you know, all of these like experiences that I got to do as far as the application. So I wrote press releases. So if we're going to talk about the writing process, I'm going to walk you through how I wrote this release, walk you through the three stages, and bring in a journalist to walk you through how they might do that. Talk a little bit about you know, you know, having these connections to be able to bring into the classroom. Um, also bring in experiences that kind of take the learning past just the four walls and, and allow people to see what's happening beyond the campus um, to make that learning real and to make those experiences, you know, to, to make connections to see that anything that you do have that 
passion for pursuing is tangible. So, you know, one of the stories I tell to, to kind of illustrate that uh, was when I was working as uh, the statistician for the D-League team, I uh, brought one of my students, and I don't know how um, this young man, his name is Emilio, I don't know how he became a Chicago Bulls fan in 2012 in the Central Valley of California. Um, has no association or connection, was not alive for the, the Jordan-era Bulls run, but right. he had the cap, he read the books in the library, so there's something about the, that, that team that really drew to him. So it so happened that the night he came to be my student scorekeeper, um, a scout for the Bulls was there that night. And so I made a point to introduce the two before that evening's game. And so he goes to shake his hand. And the scout goes, oh, hey, Chicago Bulls. And the kids, he's, he, he doesn't really have a lot to say. He's just kind of like, you know, wow, that Bulls guy. He goes, yeah, he points to the hat. And the scout's shaking his hand. He gets a good grip on him, like, yeah. And he turns his hand over to make a point of showing off the uh, the big rock on his finger. And the kids just, man, it's like, oh, Oh, okay. He starts to really look in very closely and peer. He starts, I see him starting to point in a rhythm. One, two, three, four, five. He's counting the diamonds on the ring so that he can associate which championship that represents. So that's the fifth championship. That was the 97, 98 team. And it's like, I know them. And so, like, they start talking about that season. And the kids, you know, he studied up on that squad, too. And he goes, you know, I know that roster. You were not a member of that team, but how do you have a championship ring? And so the guy goes, well, it's because I'm a scout. So my job is to make sure that we have the right players to be successful. And when those players play other teams, we know enough information about those other players to set them up to be as successful as they can be. So I helped to put that team together and recruit some of the players. And when you're a full-time member of a championship team, even if you're not a player, you are a champion. If you can contribute to the success of that organization, you get treated with all of the lauds and glory as well. And that includes a championship ring. And he just melted. And he stopped and he goes, you know, I like basketball. I don't see myself as a basketball player. But if you're telling me that I could be a champion just by being a part of the team, that changes some things. And he goes, yeah, you know, we don't always have the, the guys that we think are going to contribute, but then they grow into it and they become a part of the system and we find where they best contribute to us uh and there's a guy that can speak to that really well and he turns over his shoulder to his left and he goes hey scotty could you go over here for a second <laughs> and so yeah scotty pippen comes by he's there to mm -hmm. scout for one of the players on the sure. i believe it was a dallas mavericks uh, deal team. and so the kid's just a puddle now he's just gone oh, of course yeah. sure. right right now everything he had ever just seen on tv read in a book was right there in his face and because he had the opportunity to explore the connection between, you know, math that we were learning about and that game directly and see all of these people that he were just like, were well out of his reach. Now it was very much tangible. And so to watch that young man go from somebody who was written off as, you know, back during these days with the California state testing, they would classify students as, you know, basic or below basic or... And so this was one of those kids who prior was referred to as below basic. To see him attain proficiency just in the span of six months, jump about two bands there, um, it's because now he saw a path for himself. And that's something I always valued as far as bringing my experience before I got into education into the classroom uh, to allow students to see how these skills really do have a place and purpose in attaining whatever vision you have for yourself beyond education. All right, so let's switch gears here for a minute. So we've talked about your education stuff. We have to get into the Jeopardy because we have obviously we oh, can't we, uh, we can't have a conversation with you without talking about being on Jeopardy. And I didn't put it at the beginning. I don't know if I just like feel like it should be a cool surprise later in the conversation. People don't already know that you were on Jeopardy. But anyway, let us know uh, about how that went because you got in there during the Alec uh, Trebek days too, right? So the timing of this is in and of itself like i feel like this could be an, an entire like episode right, so sure. i was uh one of alex trebek's final contestants my episode my first episode aired election night of 2020 anybody uh, doing anything that night yeah right uh, hopefully you weren't preempted right <laughs> uh, and then slow news they, night a little bit yeah and then the week after my episodes aired he passed away that weekend 
Oh, and wow. so everything came together all at once. It was so many of these confluence points with COVID, with uh, with with Alex going through his stage four mm-hmm. at, at the late stage, um, with the election circling through, um, and so it was a really unique experience. And in the lens of education, it actually informed a lot of how I reflect on assessment or the way that we see kind of the the process of quizzing. And and I want to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, after I kind of explain the process, because there's a lot that goes into it as far as like getting on the show. But one thing I wanted to just kind of point out is, again, this was around when they were returning from hiatus after shutting production down um, around the onset of COVID. So I want to say this was around mid-2020. I had taken the Anytime test. And if anybody has has ever had a chance to do that, you can kind of reflect on what that experience is like. But if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Nothing to lose, but just to go through that process to see what that first stage is because it's a much more accessible process than it previously had been. Um, so it's essentially a, a 50 question test you take in 15 minutes. Um, and so I took that back in January, and I they let you take it maybe once a year or so, just on a whim. It's something I've always wanted to do. I love game shows. I'm passionate about game shows since I was a kid, and so this was one of my bucket list things to, to try and do. So I, I tested on January. I felt I did okay. And then around March or so, I get an email back saying, hey, we'd love to audition you, but we have to do it over Zoom. So I was like, all right, so well, I, mean, I had to make sure I was positioned well, my lighting was good. Um, I had to audition with uh, Sarah from the Clue Crew, which was really interesting. And it was half audition and then another 50 question test in 15 minutes. And you know, that's just to make sure that you are authentically able to respond to these questions and there's no outside help. And sure. you're not you know, bringing in any other factors to, to guide you along that way. So I did that and um, at that point, it had been a little bit of radio silence. Another couple of months later, back in May, I got asked to do another audition. And again, this would be over Zoom, but this would be a group audition. And so you'd be in there with other potential contestants, and we want to make sure that you're able to interact well, play within the flow of the game. You can play a mock game against some of the others, and we'll do a brief little interview with it. And that was with their contestant coordinators. And I was really curious from the EdTech side to see, all right, how does this process work? How are they going right. to facilitate a remote game of Jeopardy right. over Zoom? How are they going to see who buzzes in fast? And right. I was really eager for that because as an academic coach, I was like, I am going to bring this to my team. And so they laid out the... The, the, the structures of how that was going to go. They go, okay, we ask that you bring a clickable pen. When you have an answer, go ahead and visibly in front of the camera, click, and we'll look and see if you were like the one. And I was like, that's it? You're going to go lo-fi like that? Oh that's how we're going to play. Okay, you know what? You're the pros. This is right. your deal. I'm just going to go along with it. And so um, it was also very heartening, disheartening to kind of be in that room too because you know everybody's introducing themselves and you have doctors and you have lawyers and you have accountants sure. you have professors. And so I, I'm here, I'm like, okay, imposter syndrome 101. All right, mm-hmm. let's go. And fortunately, by the time it came to just play the game, I felt great. And you know, it, it actually was um, you know, kind of deflating to see all of these other doctors and professors really not know their stuff. Uh, but I think... <laughs> That that would you know once you see it, it it's no longer a surprise especially when you see it on the grander scale so uh, I felt great about that and then you know production was on hold they were still looking to bring in contestants and auditions so I was like you know what we'll see we'll wait to go here and early August I get the call you know I see recognize the area code and I see it's come from Culver City California I'm like oh this could be a thing so I think I was in the middle of um, a PD prepper planning with um, my my other coaches with Bakersfield City School District and I had to take the call and it was outside and I'm pacing out there for like 25 30 minutes and I'm sure that you know somebody thought I was doing like a job interview or something like that uh, but it was laying out all of the particulars and details. Yeah, we'd like to have you come in and be a contestant. Um, make sure you're at this day. Make sure you have a COVID test. Um, protocol-wise, uh, we're not going to have you near Alex. We have to keep distance uh, because he's immunocompromised. And, and so it was just learning a lot about what that process was going to entail. And so, yeah, for the next three or four weeks, 
um, I had to go into just, you know, continuous prep mode and, you know, it would, you know, go into those categories and see if there are any resources that, that I need to work up on. Really focus more on my reaction skills. I wanted to make sure that I was not going to miss a question because I wasn't the first one to buzz in. So I started downloading apps for reaction trainers to make sure I could focus on that. Uh, and then the day of the taping comes and um, they tape five episodes in a single day. Um, there was no studio audience, again, COVID, so we had to wait in the Wheel of Fortune studio until it was time for our episode. So I'm just sitting in the awesome. audience for the – and that might have been the most depressing part of it is to see how sad Wheel of Fortune is without all of the lighting and the energy. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Um, everything was just dark. There was a tarp over the wheel and then a sign oh. next to it that says, do not touch the wheel. Oh, all caps. Just and so it. like – uh, just because like, they know they know if, if you're gonna yeah. walk oh, by like you're not just gonna sure. not try no. and so i had to you know you can see all of the other episodes being taped before you get called in for yours and so mine was the second of the day i had just watched the defending champion just wipe the floor with her two opponents to win her third game in a row and so um i was essentially nervous because again imposter syndrome was hit and it hit during rehearsal when I was unable to signal in. I think we got 15 questions and I got in on two of them. And at that point, the coordinators could tell I was starting to get a little down on myself. I was starting to you know, consider just playing with house money. You know what, I have no chance here. Let's just have fun, whatever. And she came up to me and she goes, you seem to be having a little bit of trouble on getting into the, the buzzer. And so she, she kind of coached me along and said, okay, so what are you using to cue when to signal in? And so I told her, you know, I know that if I have the answer, I can't signal in. And one of the things they don't tell you is that if you signal in too early before the host finishes reading the clue, you get locked out. Oh, It's not wow. by a lot. It's by about a quarter of a second. Hmm. But that makes a big difference. Yeah. And so yeah. you don't want to be too early, but you also don't want to be too late. And so timing comes into play very significantly. And what you don't see is that there are a string of lights on the side of the board that go on and flash when it's okay for you to signal in. There's somebody who has a switch that activates the signal devices for you to signal in. And so I told her, hmm. I'm waiting for those to light up to know to go in because I've been working on my reaction so I see that and I'm ready to go in but I feel like I'm too late on that one and so she goes okay so what's something else you might be able to use as your cue to time out when you can go in and so I go well I mean I guess I can just kind of wait to anticipate and listen to when he finishes reading the clue and then when I feel like it's about done that's when I can jump in on that and she goes okay so um, the the next chance I got to signal in was the first question of my episode and so you know once i got in on that first question i, f I got into a groove it, it ended up being a pretty good run i ended up winning two episodes and um what was amazing about that was you know hearing from all of these people who had you know heard i was going to be on the show but you know across you know growing up in staten island and and here in bakersfield as well um it was really interesting to see that you know come to, to to fruition and what was really interesting too was after the fact of you know all of these you know media outlets reaching out especially so soon you know around uh, Alex Trebek's passing but also it, it provided a lens into this deeper trivia community as far as you know other people who continue to explore and, and people who've been on Jeopardy or others who were looking to get on and, and and it really opened up a few things as an educator that were interesting. One was the structure and sequencing of questions, but two, also the seek the the format of how to bring in more um, you know participants and to engage them in the learning process as far as that. And so I started to reflect on you know how we generally consider you know what what we call a quiz in, in school, and you know how we're really only testing one thing when we do that. And what was it called? Uh, uh, you know it or you don't. It, it's uh, it's an, you know it, it's been acronized in in this. So, you know what's really interesting is to see how can you structure questioning practices and quizzes to bring in more, to get better information, and to provide deeper connections that may not have been available to allow more to participate in the process successfully. And so 
that was really eye-opening, and it's something that I've been able to continue through uh, even since Jeopardy. I, I was on another uh, game show a year after that. Um, there's always more auditions that I continue to throw in on, and so it's been a really interesting pivot that has uh, really informed a lot of how I reconsider, you know, questioning techniques, but also you know, coaching in regards to the cognitive aspect, which I thought was you know really significant to help me get through that first episode. So, yeah, that is really interesting. So I think we have to ask, was was Trebek getting to meet him, was he just amazing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just being in his presence was was pretty surreal. Um, because of the structure of game shows and the regulations in place, um, there are federal laws that uh, indicate the structures at which contestants are allowed to interact with um with hosts and so my interactions were very limited uh to what was you know on screen but um you know there were opportunities you know in between breaks um you know we had to reapply makeup that's a big part of you know being on jeopardy they don't kind of tell you about sure. this you know the lights are hot and because of covid they couldn't have the makeup artists do that yourself so i had to do a lot of that you know with a a powder puff on my end and they're all they had to walk through sequence but you know i have different needs you know i, I shave my head I, i've got a shine on top and so my instructions <laughs> my sequence for that is very different so he gets up in front of the podiums and the makeup artist goes okay so you're going to start to puff on your forehead swell around. hey devin you're gonna have to start way further back there you got a lot more real estate to cover <laughs> just right in front of everybody the whole team of course yeah. and so um <laughs> during my second episode they're walking through this uh, and, he, and, and Trebek looks over at me and he goes, you know, Devin, if you continue this run here, you're going to kill our makeup budget by mid-season. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a guy That's from awesome. Staten Island. I hear something like that. I've got to come back. But I can't. What, do, what am I going to say to Alex Trebek? Right. You know, he's at this point. I'm just, I just have to swallow it, take it like, ha, ah, yeah. good one, sir. Yeah, that was yeah, great. Thank you, sir. Um, thank you. Man, Matt, good, good for you. Thank you for that. This is a choice. I just want to clarify. But um, he, he was always in good spirits. Yeah. I know, there are, you know there's a lot that was said about like his energy and, and, and the stage he was in at that time. I can tell you that as soon as he walked out onto the set, that was his wheelhouse. That is where he felt most comfortable, most confident. Um, yeah, he sure. was his well-renowned, energetic, and welcoming self, authoritative but kind, and just genuinely enjoyed the the competition and the the event of it all. And you know, after I got to see my episodes finally air. And I had that moment where, um, you know, I, I got my final Jeopardy question correct. I locked in the win on my first episode uh, and, and overcame that terrifying fear of getting a question right but not wagering correctly as a math specialist. That was my worst fear going <laughs> yeah, into this show. Of course. But having to overcome that and then, you know, one of the things Ray remarked is I was clapping, I fist pumping, and they, you don't generally see that, but that's how thrilled I was with the win. And as I'm doing that, I missed something that Alex Trebek had said. I only caught it upon watching my episode. And he said, try to enjoy the moment if you can. Hmm. And that took on a lot of significance after he passed away so shortly thereafter. And it's something sure. that I reflect on a lot as far as being able to, to really appreciate when you find yourselves on these unusual um, surreal stages w with the opportunity to, to perform at a high level and uh, that always stood out to me following that and so that's that's something I, I, I always want to you know hold with me from my interactions with Alex Trebek. It's interesting the way you describe him is really kind of the way that we describe like our favorite teachers you know authoritative but kind right confident enjoying the moment like those are the teachers those are the kinds of teachers that people remember and and inspire people to want to become teachers um and i always learn every time i watch that show well that's, i'll even take it a really step further i think that alex trebek is probably the most significant figure in literacy over the past 38 years hmm. and here's why i say that one of the best ways to really learn how to read is by pairing audio with the visual right yeah. think back to uh richard meyer's uh, cognitive theory of multimedia learning you can re you can learn with images and you can learn with text and you can learn with audio but when you bring them together you learn more mm 
And so think about what Alex Trebek was. He was a constant reading off of the same font, the same background, in the same cadence, 61 questions a night, five nights a week at the same time for over 37 years. A lot of the way that we learn how to read, if you're a young person uh, following along with that show, is consistent. Mm -hmm. And so it allows you to understand, you know, inflection and, you know, uh, roots across multiple languages, pronunciation. Right, I was about to say, in a consistent lots of different way. languages for sure. Absolutely. He spent a considerable amount of time making sure in his show prep that he got pronunciation precise mm -hmm. and you know you never heard any him get called out for anything like that like oh he didn't say that spanish cognate correctly like he was on point every single time yeah that's something hmm that's one of those experiences that you know i mean it's hard to i don't know it's hard for anybody to understand what it was like but you did an awfully great job i mean i felt like i was there yeah so and you know i think yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you have a moment to, to experience something that you've always wanted to do like that, and you get there, there's always something off about it. Like, it's, it's, the scope is, is either, you know, too big or too small. Um, like, it's not what you, you thought it would live up to. And this was just walking onto that set um, was exactly like it was thought like you thought it would be like if you had the ability to physically walk into a dream and have it be exactly as you thought it would be um it lived up to every bit of it yeah but that's awesome that's cool very cool so very, very cool. what what is your as they kind of auditioned all the different hosts did you have a a preferred host that you liked being a former winner or you just happy to you know, just kind of see them choose. Because I, I feel like everybody they picked was competent. You, you know what I mean? It wasn't like they were just throwing it out to random people. So did you no. have a preference? Well, or? I mean, some of them were. But sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of them I was like, why? Why? Like, like <laughs> what possible reason or connection do you have other than, like, just, like, being visible for two weeks on syndicated television? They're but, right. Sure. Um, <laughs> one of the things that really stood out to me during this whole process is the fact that the host isn't really the star of the show. Right. It's been the contestants, and especially these contestants that have gone on these outstanding runs during this time, right? We've had people come on and win 30 episodes in a row, uh, go on to win like stretches of over a million dollars, but just by consistency. Um, you know, th I think they said that this might be the first year where winning five games in a row may not be enough to qualify you for a tournament of champions because there have been so many people who have just had these outstanding runs. Wow. And the show has been really defined by those individuals, by Matt Amodio and Amy Schneider, John, all of these amazing champions who have just made this stretch of contestants probably the strongest of any season of Jeopardy uh, in, in the run of the show's history. And so... I feel like regardless of who they go with, as long as you have the quality of contestants that are able to, to really stand out and, and, and be personable and connect with audiences and celebrate knowledge and information and wisdom, uh, I think that the show is going to be fine. And I feel like that's where, where Jeopardy is at this stage, where it, it, it's always been technically that way, but now... We're seeing the celebritization of, you know, s solid, knowledgeable people yep. that come from all these great backgrounds, and I, I think that's tremendous. And I think that's it, it's the right moment and the right time for that. My my daughter, we recently watched uh, the original Jumanji with Robin Williams, and so then she wanted to watch Hook, so she's going on this like Robin Williams binge of watching some of those movies. And uh, just so happened, clearly our computers are listening to us on YouTube. It popped up when Robin Williams was on uh, the tonight show with Johnny Carson and like, you know, in the eighties. Right. And uh, my daughter was just busting up watching that. And um, so it, it, we watched that and then it linked to an interview with Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson echoed that exact same sentiment with the way that he viewed his job as a television host. He said, my job's not to be the funniest person in the room or my job's not to be the coolest or the most well-liked my job's to make everybody else that's with me 
you know, the funniest or to cue them up with great questions or to support them. And, and, you know, I just thought what a cool sentiment because, you know, like that's not usually what people get into the spotlight for. And, and, you know, of course, then I'm talking to my wife about it and I'm like, you know, that's what a great teacher is too. It's like, if you work in education, you're a coach, you're a principal, you are a, you know, a superintendent, a teacher, you know, that job is working hard to make sure that the people you support look great. And, and just, you know, and it, and it really shows that that's the true definition of good leadership and of, of, uh, you know, of elevating other people. I always chuckle when I hear the term rock star teacher, right? Because like, that's almost the antithesis of, you know, what we want the product of our experience to be. You could have a rock star teacher. I can tell you there are some pretty garbage rock stars out there that I would not be a better person having to hurt. Like, and in the wrong environments, a rock star is not what you want. Like, right. uh, I, I remember I was at the, <laughs> so, uh, 4th of July uh, in Boston at the Esplanade, the Hatch Shell, they have this amazing show with the Boston Pops, right? Mm-hmm. And, Every now and then they'll bring in a celebrity to perform and, and, and sing with the Boston Pops. And it's somebody from Broadway or somebody who just nails the standard, singer-songwriter. I went one year and they brought in David Lee Roth. Oh, gosh. And, you know, this was like, again, early 2000s. This is right. not like peak Van Halen David Lee Roth. Right. This is like, hey, maybe I want to be an EMT for a little bit, David Lee Roth. <laughs> <laughs> And so he gets up there and, you know, the Pops has these, you know, orchestrated versions of some of the songs that he's known for. Sure. It's not meshing. It's just, uh, I, you know, what was he saying? Like he was, he tried to sing Jump. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I might want it. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. It, it wasn't clicking. In the rock, it, it, you know, a rock star teacher is not always a solution, but when you can when you can take that confidence if you've got it that credibility that background that confidence and experience to say yeah all the things that we're going to show you how to do i've done them here's how they apply to when i did them but i want to make sure that you have a ability to connect it with what you know where you've been and where you want to go because i want you to be a rock star and i don't want to be the star Uh, i want you to be able to have that confidence to take a stage that you didn't feel that you could and make it your own um so i mean, so uh, one of the things that i again I, I i talked a lot earlier about wanting to bring the world to my students so that they could broaden out beyond the four walls of their classroom so um one year just out of curiosity and this was something i did just as kind of a, a toe dip into education um i was doing a blog called uh, a year without football uh, and it, the, the, the premise of this is I would explore the world of sports as a sports fan by cutting off American football entirely from my diet. Like, why is this taking up so much of our space? Why do I have to worry about whether Brett Favre is going to retire when there's a baseball season happening right now? Like, let's focus on that. No, we're going to talk about NFL offseason for four months. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was kind of a, a test in that. And so I, that's when I got into Australian rules football. Um, I, 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 it's one of those things where it seems like a sport that people are just going to like, you would make it up on the playground by mixing together five different games <laughs> and it would make no sense until you actually just sit down and appreciate it. And so I really got into that. Um, around the time that Common Core was coming around, I wanted to get into the habit of writing lesson plans, cross-curricular. And so I wrote some lessons based off of Australian rules football. And I got into connection with the U.S. Australian Football League, and I said, you know, I have these lessons. I'd like to provide them for you so you can post them on your website as part of your outreach. And they said, these are great. What could we do to kind of, you know, make, you know, what could we provide for you along the way? I was like, you know, I'd love to teach this at its school. So if you have, like, any equipment, that'd be great. Just thinking I'd get, like, a couple of balls or, like, you know, something. They send the head coach of the U.S. national team and the president of their league to our campus for a full day clinic. Oh my God. Wow. And so now I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like we have a cross-cultural exchange. Like this is a big, like national level individual, you know, team we have coming through. Uh, it was a K through six school. So, you know, for most of the day, it was the other grade levels, just getting to play and learn the sport for a little bit. But for my students, it was an opportunity to describe to them what they've learned about 
their sport to a national level coach. And so a lot of my students, you know, English language learners, they're still trying to pick up just kind of the realities of their world around them. But we had one uh, young lady who was interviewed by uh, our local media about like the, the, the clinic, the day, and, and, you know, this is one of our English language stations. And this is something that has visibility here in Bakerfield, about 75,000 people at home watching this. And so she came back the next day and she said, uh, you know, my parents saw that story and saw me talk on the news in English. And it was, I've, I've never seen them prouder. And I just thought about that. It was like this young lady who at the beginning of the year was very nervous about saying anything in English about how she would be perceived to now being on camera and being visible uh, for you know the, the entire city uh, based off of what she learned about in class. Um, and again, I, I think that again, once you have that credibility, mm -hmm. it enables your students to see that in themselves and buy into the paths that you're offering to them so that when they take that stage and they shine, it, it, it unlocks so many opportunities and doorways that were inconceivable or you know maybe out of reach prior to that. Hmm. So many lessons to take away from this stuff for people who are listening. I mean, you've got some amazing stories. I mean, really do. We could we could sit here and do this all night. Um, I think the one huge takeaway from that uh, is reach out, reach out and share your stuff like that. I, I think that is what what got that whole thing started was that you reached out to them and said, "Hey, I put this together. Do you want it?" As opposed to, hey, pay me for what I did for mm. you. You know what I mean? And I feel like that, that's, that's one of those things in education that um, it's one of the attitudes of teachers that sometimes gets lost is, you know, the idea that teachers really should create what they create and then share it and the good things come back yep. to them. Obviously, that's what happened to you. It worked out great. Uh, and what an awesome experience for your kids because you reached out to share something that you had done. Like, I just love that. And I think that that, that is, if, if people are hopefully taking away things from this podcast, I hope they take that away as much as anything else. Um, but such an awesome, what, what, so we want to do this again. We're going to have you on and so you can tell us yeah. more stories. Yeah, we need to have Devin on part two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is two part. Sure. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and for one, we, thank you very much for rescheduling like five times because we've had a heck of a time finding finding time to meet there's yeah. just been all sorts of weird stuff going on so we apologize for that so thank you for being patient with us because i know you've you're got a busy schedule and and we're just two lowly podcasters and we appreciate you taking the time to be on here with that's us. the truth yeah no that's not the truth you're not lowly don't say that <laughs> we're medium we're just above lowly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so again we could keep going for hours and hours, I'm sure. But what uh, what have you got going on? We at the end of the show, we always like to kind of talk about what's what's going mm -hmm. on with this right now. So what have you got? What have you got kind of in the in the cooker on the back burner going on right now? So I'm starting to kick around the idea of developing a session around this idea of game showification. You know, how can educators create meaningful formative assessment that is engaging enough that doesn't require a lot of tech, but you know, allows us to develop meaningful questions uh, in an environment that allows learners to create pathways to an ideal solution that they can use as a takeaway. Some of you know my lessons from being on you know game shows, you know. In, in the past and, and, and coming up there, you know, that's what I've got in the works too, is there's, you know, a couple of these auditions come through and, you know, you get a call and it comes around. Uh, I also uh, work with uh, Dreambox Learning as a professional development specialist. And so, you know, we're, um, we're right in the heart of uh, back to school season. So if you're at a conference and you see Dreambox, uh, let them know that uh, you heard about, uh, you know, about it from, uh, from the podcast and, and, uh, it, you know, always great to, to make that out there. And then um, some work with uh, the Kern Q organization here in Kern County. Uh, we are starting to develop some events. Uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, follow at, uh, at Kern Q. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome, good stuff. Uh, Dave, what do you got going on? I just got back from Austin, Texas. Uh, I, I was uh, lucky enough to be chosen in the state to attend uh, this new initiative from code.org to bring more computer science into primary and elementary classrooms. And um, uh, so it was me and other teacher. And then we have a regional representative for the state 
And uh, we're this next year is going to be kind of our initiative of uh, trying this out. They're hoping to to put this in more and more school districts, but uh, we ha- my school district and then another one is the pilot school. So I spent three days with Code.org in uh, Austin and uh, finishing up uh, my admin classes and then just getting ready for school. It's right around the corner. It is right so around the corner. coming quick. So what about you, Adam? Well, I've got I got a new job. That was one of the big things that changed. Um, I started. I'm no longer in a school district after just about well 20 years, mm-hmm. um, and so now I'm at the state level. Uh, with an organization called the Illinois Principals Association, and we do professional development for administrators. And I'm working with some pretty awesome people, you know, putting together uh, platforms and and doing some coding and some programming and and learning a ton of stuff uh, very very quickly. So it's uh, it's been a really really cool experience and a, and a, a mind shift for me. Um, I'm also recovering from an injury, and you guys will enjoy this. We went to the Cardinal game the other night. Uh, and it was, of course, the night. Um, well, it wasn't the night. It was the night before Pujols hit it. No, it was the night he hit his third place uh, extra base hit. It was just okay. two nights ago or whatever. I missed it because we left. Because I tried to catch a foul ball, and I busted the living crap out of my middle finger and couldn't stand the pain. I was, like, dripping in sweat. Like, you know, you, if you've, like, hurt yourself oh, no. enough that it, it, like, hurts and you can't breathe and you want to throw up. Sure. That's what it was like. So. I have, you can't see it in the video, but uh, it's uh, my fingers all swollen. So I'm not playing guitar for a little while, which sucks. Cardinals and fans don't use that finger anyway. That's, they that's don't. what it's I've heard. True. It's usually, <laughs> yeah. right. It's uh, not very often, especially. It's rare. Not to their own players. Which that's is true. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's kind of what we got going on. What, yeah. uh, what are you guys drinking? Who wants to go first? So. So there's two answers to that question. Uh, there is the broader uh, what's in my hand, and then there's the more seasonal one when it's time to, to take it easy. So uh, I've been on an old Milwaukee kick lately. Oh, really? Um, you know, oh yeah, it's, it is a, it's, it's a good price right now. Um, I've been really leaning into some of the non-alcoholics lately just for the flavor, and sure. I can't believe it's taken so long for me to discover like the fact that it is you know low carb, low calorie, no alcohol, and so it, it's really nice for my kids to see me drinking this because they know it's non-alcoholic. And so, sure. um, I, however, that does mean that it they think it's okay for them to bring right. me one during a work meeting. It's like, Dad, it's not an alcoholic. Fine, you look like you're thirsty. Like I cannot right. be on camera. <laughs> With an old Milwaukee at, noon. at 1 p.m. Yeah. 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 Getting That's pulled awesome. over but, with the Heineken Zero. Though. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I, and aside from that, though, um, it's summertime. And uh, one of the things I picked up during my trip to London with the Innovator program uh, around this time, it was about three years ago with the London 19 cohort, uh, was a Wimbledon special known as the Pimps Cup. Oh, and so, okay. So uh, I heard Pimps, people talking about this. What is this? Uh, Pim's Cup is wonderful. So it is a, a gin-based liqueur known as Pim's Number no. One, and it is mixed in with either a sparkling lemonade or a ginger ale or uh, a blend of both. And then, uh, in addition to being poured over ice, it's garnished with uh, some fruits like a, a, a orange, or a strawberry, cucumber is very important, and then a sprig of mint as well. And wow. so it's got a little bit of a fizz to it. It's a refreshing uh, citrus that goes really nicely on a hot summer. Again, very popular at Wimbledon when you have to sit around in the sun for you know, some of these longer matches. But I remember very vividly, I tried to get into Wimbledon. It's way out of sight of London. I wasn't going to have time to pull it off. But they had a viewing stage for it along the banks of the Thames River. So I had it in, you know, they had it at a bar uh, riverside. I grabbed it, had a seat in the amphitheater and watched a Federer match um, out in the awesome. open. It was a awesome. tremendous experience. And so I always try to connect it with that. Awesome. I, I have yeah, uh, lost a ton of Wimbledon We just now. I, I loved it. It's like my favorite oh. competition of the year. It's even have, better when guys are yelling at their like team behind them about not being supportive enough. Like in the yes. final, that yeah. was <laughs> next level. That was Come a little on! hard to watch. Slow yeah. forty, right? Uh, I, I'm drinking a local brewing company uh, in my hometown of Waterloo, Illinois. Uh, stubborn German. It is a Peterstown Pilsner named after a next door town that they brew. And if you like a Pilsner, this is this is a high quality Pilsner. So big fan of that. So Adam, what about you? I like the local. I got a. Uh, I'm having an old fashioned with uh, Weller Special Reserve. Fantastic. Um, that was given to me as I left my last job, um, as a sort of a going away present. So that was very nice, and uh, so I'm enjoying that right now. 
fantastic. Yeah. Well, Devin, um, we're going to try to get this closing in, in, in two minutes. Uh, thanks again for You're taking awesome, the, the evening to talk with us. We got to figure out something else here, Dave. We can't be. <laughs> We can't be doing this all the time. No, no. we can't. Yeah. Uh, but again, thanks so much for taking the time. This is an awesome conversation. We awesome. expect to see you again back on this podcast soon. So we'll yep. be reaching out for sure. Um, Absolutely. And everybody, thank you for great. listening. You can find us at edtechdistilled.com on the internet. You can find us at all the places that you find podcasts like Spotify and Pandora and uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at, at edtechdistilled.com. And I am at Adam Geisen, and that is at Mr. Lurch class. Um, that's Dave there. So uh, again, thank you guys for listening. Devin, thank you so much for taking the time. It was such an awesome conversation. We're pumped to have you. Dave, uh, thank you again for using your Zoom account. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode.